figured out. Isaiah chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter tonight. Uh, prayerfully, we'll get through the whole chapter here, but let's begin with verse 1, uh, and we'll read down through verse number 3. The Bible says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, which, uh, w- rather, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, these are kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished uh, and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. And what we have right here is God calling Judah into a courtroom and uh, he's going to put them on trial for the way they've been behaving. And so the title of the message this evening is this, Judah versus Jehovah. Judah versus Jehovah. Let's pray together. Lord, help us tonight as we look at this, uh, these verses, and Lord, uh, draw out some applications that are applicable uh, to us here in America, and Lord, uh, prevalent to us as a people And, Lord, help us to see the traps that Judah fell in. And, Lord, within our own culture and time, realize that we fall into many of these same traps. And so, Lord, help us to really purge our hearts and have hearts that are worthy to worship you. And, Lord, hearts that are honest in our worship of you. And, Lord, um, help us to bring revival back uh, to this area. Uh, Lord, definitely this church and possibly this country. And, Lord, may we do our part. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm going to lay out some background for you very, very, very briefly, and then we'll get right into the outline tonight. First, look at verse number 1 with me. Isaiah 1, 1. Let's hop right in. Notice there it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem. And so, at least initially, we see that Isaiah is called to minister to Judah and and Jerusalem. Now, there's some uh, debate over when this was written and the timing of when it was written, but most likely this was written when the ten northern tribes of Israel would have already been carried away into captivity by the Assyrians, and now the Assyrians are pressing in on Israel, pressing in on Judah, and we know uh, throughout this book and what would be predicted by Isaiah and also what would come to pass Um, that Babylon would end up taking over Israel and not Assyria. But Assyria was a real threat at the writing of the book of Isaiah. And so he's writing to Judah and Jerusalem, and we get the era or the time of which it was. Look here. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these are kings, uh, kings of Judah. Look at verse... So verse 1, we get uh, who wrote the book. We get uh, who he was, where he was, And when he was. Okay, now what are the two themes of Isaiah's book? I gave you an overview uh, last week, and in that overview, I gave you two words that sort of sum up the book, and the words were judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Let me give you another way of maybe wording that, okay? And and, uh, the, the whole book really can be summarized this way it is the government of God and the grace of God. The government of God. And the grace of God. And and next to the government of God, if you end up writing that down, you can uh, uh, scribble down the three-letter word law. The law of God and the government of God represents that 
that law, that I will drop the hammer if you make me. If you don't repent, I will punish. And, and there's even prophecies that God was going to punish and how God was going to punish. But the book is also laced with hope and the book is laced with God's grace. Now we'll even see the government of God and the grace of God play out tonight in Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, we have a better idea of what all this means. But throughout uh, Isaiah 1 and really throughout the book, there are times where God promises hope where Israel would be healed and there would be a new Jerusalem and a reign of a king of Salem or Zion being made new. And we understand that now through this, the scope of history and proper perspective, we have a better view on that. We understand that to be the millennial reign of Christ and a lot of that hope was promised there. What is the message of Isaiah chapter 1? Now, I'd encourage you to write these three things down, okay? Religious apostasy. Religious apostasy, we find that here. We'll get into that once we get uh, into point number, uh, uh, point one, letter B of the outline here. But religious apostasy, and that word apostasy just means a straying away or false doctrine. And Israel had gotten to a place where they were religious, but they were wicked. Religious, but wicked. They were going through the proper motions, but their religion was wicked. Well, what happens when a country loses its religious state? What happens when a nation's religion ceases to be pure and becomes apostate? Religious apostasy leads to moral awfulness. Moral awfulness. And uh, what happens is when the church no longer, the message at the church house in the culture no longer matters, the morality of the nation begins to slide. Um, at church... The Bible is held high, and we proclaim, Thus saith the Lord, and the Bible is the standard of right and wrong. When the Bible ceases to be the standard of right and wrong, and we're simply doing right for right's sake, well, now all of a sudden that goes from being objective to subjective, and boy, that can change depending on how the culture wants to define that, and that's exactly what would happen here in Israel, and we'll see this laid out in chapter 1. So religious apostasy leads to moral awfulness, awfulness, which leads to political anarchy, political anarchy. Eventually Babylon would come in and take them over, and their city would be burned, and they would fall apart. Why? Because they lost their way with God. That led to moral awfulness, which ended up leading to political anarchy, political destruction. And so that is the theme, the message of Isaiah chapter 1. So that's an overview. Let's jump in to the outline and let me give you two main thoughts and two subpoints below each thought uh, that will sum up the chapter and help you understand how the chapter is laid out here. Okay, point number one, nota, Judah's offending sins. Judah's offending sins. Um, we're going we're to see from verse 2 down through verse number 17, uh, just the, the crimes that they had committed in the courtroom of Jehovah. And God is articulating Judah's shortcomings through his prophet Isaiah. Notice letter A, their rebellion. Their rebellion. Look at uh, verse number 2 here, and we'll see uh, down through a few verses that what's laid out for us is that their rebellion was senseless. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, 
For the Lord hath spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Look there. I have brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Um, uh, any of you here that have raised children and you've had teenagers go through your home and you've seen the rebellion of a teenager or an adult child who is rebellious and has a rebellious spirit, you understand how heartbreaking that is. And uh, you look at that child and you think to yourself, I, I remember when you took your first steps. You know, I remembered uh, when I was up with you all night while you were uh, gumming and cutting teeth. And uh, I remember... Um, now, taking that overtime work in order to be able to provide for you to be involved in that extracurricular activity. And, and, and I can remember making all kinds of sacrifices so that your life would be what it is. And now you want to rebel. Now you want to turn. Now you want to have nothing to do with me. Now you want to push away from my rules. And you want to have it your way. And uh, listen, that's exactly how Jehovah felt with Judah. Uh, I was there when Abraham was called out. And, and I was there when, uh, 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 when, when Abraham couldn't have a child. And Isaac was born, and, and I saw the struggle that was involved in that, and, and Jacob and Joseph being sold into slavery. And I was there with your forefather Joseph when he was mistreated. I, I was there when the, the whip was being cracked on your backs in uh, Egypt, and I was there to send Moses there to help you, and, and I was there to put up with your murmuring and your griping and complaining in the desert. And, and, and I was there when uh, you moved into the promised land where the milk and honey flowed. And, and listen, I've been there, uh, Jehovah is saying. I've made sacrifices. You were my children and I've loved you and, and I've always been there for you. But Judah, you've always been quick to turn your back on me and rebel from me. It's a senseless rebellion, a senseless rebellion. Look at verse 3. It says, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know my people doth not consider. What's he saying here? He's saying even an animal is loyal. Even an animal is loyal. I remember in Bible college, Wendell Evans was the president of the college while I was a student there. Wendell Evans would get up in church ed class once a year and he would give a, a, a lecture on loyalty. Loyalty. You go work for a pastor someday, you be loyal. And don't you get caught up in whispers behind the pastor's back. And don't you get caught up in uh, 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 questioning him. And he would go on this long, hard rant. He was an old Bob Jones grad. And he listened to Bob Jones Sr. Uh, give this very lecture. And he would say to us, even a dog can be loyal. Even a dog can be loyal. I've got a dog. Her name is Ginger. She's sweet as can be. But, you know, I just have to tell you right now, Ginger sometimes can be a little bit annoying, right? I'm laying on the couch and I'm trying to get some rest, and she comes and takes that wet nose and just shoves it against my hand. And I'm just like, look, now's not the time, right? How many know what I'm talking about? Now's not the time, right? And um, Angela's very sweet, and uh, there's, it's always the time for her. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of, and I'll push her away. I'll say, you know, go away. I don't, I don't want to uh, bother with you right now. But you know what? Ginger is so loyal to our home, and she's no, so loyal to me. And listen, even though I'm not always nice to her, she's always sweet with me. And uh, she hops up in our, our window seat at our house, and every car that drives by, 
every mailman that uh, pulls up, every Amazon driver that drops off a package, she barks like she's going to kill that person. And, uh, you know, what truth is she'd probably just lick him to death. But there's that loyalty, that loyalty. And God is saying here, even an ox, even a donkey knows who their owner is, knows how to be loyal. Judah doesn't know. You, you have turned your back on me. You're worse off than an animal. Look at verse number 4. Uh, ah, sinful nation, a people laden, look at this phrase, laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward, they turned their back on me. Um, verse 5, why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more, the whole head is sick and the whole heart uh, faint from the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been clothed, uh, clothed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. What's he saying here? He's saying, you have rebelled to a place where it has cost you. You have rebelled to a place where it has hurt you. You've abandoned me and tried to do this on your own to a place where it's brought you to brought you to destruction and ruin. And here you are senselessly rebelling from the God who made you a nation and gave you your identity and you've rebelled and turned your back on me. The rebellion was senseless, but not only was their rebellion senseless, their rebellion was stubborn. Look at verse number 7. Look here. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughters of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. How bad was this rebellion? This rebellion was so bad that if God had not made a promise to David that there would be a preserved remnant, he would have destroyed them the same way he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Fire and brimstone rained down on that wicked place because they had so turned their back on God. And God says here, had it not been for a promise I made to David, I would have destroyed you. He's saying this through Isaiah. I would have destroyed you the way I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. How rebellious, how stubborn, how senseless was this rebellion that even in their punishment, the punishment had lost its effect. I am thankful to say that when my children step out of line and I punish them, that punishment brings them back in line. But I have seen some children who are so stubborn that no matter how severe the punishment, the child just digs in their heels and says, I'm going to rebel that much more. And that was Israel. That was Judah. Judah had rebelled. They had been punished. Their cities had been burned. Uh, the walls of their city, which was their defense mechanism, had been torn down. And here you have thieves from outside the country running in and stealing and pillaging and looting and burning, and they still won't turn from their rebellion. The historical Gibbon gave five reasons for the decline of the Roman Empire in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. 
Now listen, again, uh, before I give these five reasons, I just want to take a moment and say this. Uh, this was written to Judah, not America. All right? I want to be clear on this. The interpretation of the passage is Judah. But I believe that there are some parallels and applications that can be made about America. I believe that America is fits uh, hand in glove with this same uh, uh, a message we laid out in Isaiah 1 of religious apostasy. Look at the churches across America. They've become apostate. Uh, the American churches have lost their voice. used to be that you cared about what the preacher thought in your life, and now the average person in this country, they don't care what the preacher thinks. And even half the people that go to church don't care what the preacher thinks. And it used to be that uh, church played a major role in, in, uh, in the town affairs. Now, uh, church is just something we drive by and remember as a relic, as a culture. Not you all, but the average person at large in America. And that's led to moral awfulness. And I believe it's leading to a political anarchy in America. How does a country go from being great to being destroyed. Well, I think we can look at Rome and see how they fell apart and pull out some applications for America and maybe see some of these things probably re- applied to Judah. Here, here's what the historical Gibbon uh, said about the fall of the Roman Empire. He gave five reasons for the decline. Here they are. Number one, he said the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home. The undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home. Is that not happening in America? Listen, um, women and men's roles in the home are being pushed in a way that's reversed, and men are being turned into nothing. If you don't believe me, just go turn on your TV and you can see it. Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace, entertainment for the populace. So higher and higher taxes, they take that money and they spend it on welfare or food for the poor, and then they would also use that money to provide venues of entertainment. Many of our sports stadiums in this country are paid for by tax dollars. Number three, mad craze for pleasure in sports, becoming uh, each year more exciting, more brutal, and more immoral. America is drunk on entertainment. How many of you here, and this isn't uh, making, uh, uh, making you identify as a bad person, how many of you here recognize the name Beyonce? Raise your hand if you recognize the name Beyonce. Keep it up. You know who Mariah Carey is? Bruno Mars? You know, we know entertainers. I wonder how many of you in here can name a current five-star general in our military. Why is it we know entertainers, but we don't know the people who keep us safe? We're drunk on entertainment. We're drunk on sports. And look, I love sports. I'm a, I'm a big sports guy. I love sports. And I've had to limit it as I've grown in the Lord. And I don't watch as much of it as I used to. There's a place for it, but America is drunk on it. It's drunk on it. So the downfall of the Roman Empire. Number four, the building of a great military when the real enemy was within. Oh, I think that describes us quite well. We're bickering and fighting with each other while we spend more money on a military than any country without. Look, the enemy that's going to destroy America is not the enemy from without. We're, we're, we are killing each other. Let me just say right here that whatever your political lean is, whatever your political viewpoints are, uh, whatever your opinions on the racial tensions in this country are, can I just encourage you to follow the Bible model of let's all love each other? 
Can, can I encourage us to all get back to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as ourselves? I think in America, so many of us are so politically charged that we're not even willing to look at someone on the other side of the political aisle as a human. And when we dehumanize each other, we might as well start eliminating each other. And uh, listen, it's time we sit down with people that we don't agree with politically and treat them like real people and have genuine conversations where we're not just looking to give our opinion. We're also looking to listen to their opinion. Number five, the fifth reason he gave for the decline of the Roman Empire, uh, the decay of religion, uh, which... which um, uh, uh, which, uh, let's see here, Le, uh, uh, I, I wrote out my notes here wrong, but the decay of religion, the decay of religion. So you see here, these five things are taking place in America. You see here that these five things are a result of rebellion. Letter B, notice, so we see letter A, their rebellion. Letter B, notice, their religion, their religion. Look at verse number 10, and uh, let's look at letter A. Uh, rather, I'm sorry, below their religion, if you want to jot this down, a, a corrupt worship, a corrupt worship. Look at verse number 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Um, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now, again, he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to Judah, and he's comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you need the context on that, go back and look at verse number 9. So he's saying to them, you are as wicked as the people in Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed. Look at verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs. Or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand? Look here, to tread my courts. He's turning up the language. Look at verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations, no more vain worship. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the call of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meetings, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, uh, when uh, ye make many prayers, I will not hear. I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood. What's he saying here? He's saying here that you are showing up to the temple and you're going through the process of worshiping me. You're bringing the animals into the temple the way that uh, Moses instructed you to do and uh, you're uh, putting the animals up on the brazen altar there and they're being uh, killed and you're going through all of the rituals of your worship. But at the end of the day, you are wicked your society is wicked. Your worship is nothing more than just you going through the motions. I wrote down uh, ways that worship, their worship was corrupted. And I think these same uh, uh, corrupt, corruptions make their way into American culture. Notice, uh, and, and so you can jot these down here, formalism. Formalism. Well, what is formalism? Formalism is falling in love with, you know, an order of service um, or a, a set of rituals maybe that folks would go through at the church. 
Now, to anyone watching online, my intent tonight is not to offend someone of another denomination, but I do seek to be clear in what I mean on this. Uh, Catholicism is filled with formalism. Formalism. And uh, uh, I've met plenty of Catholics. My mom-in-law is a Catholic, and uh, I believe she's gotten saved, but uh, she's just in love with the formalism of the Catholic Church. And it's this idea of, I, I, I want to do it because of the way it makes me feel. And I find comfort in doing it that way and repeating things after the priest and going around. And, and that's, that's formalism. And here, that's what had taken place here in the temple. They were used to, from the time they were a, a small child growing up, going in with mom and dad into the temple and bringing that animal and laying it up there and seeing it sacrificed. They, they were used to the smell of the incense that would burn there in the holy place and maybe even out in the courtyard. They were used to all of the customs and all of the rituals that Moses had set up and they were using that to be religious and they were missing the whole point that those things were supposed to point forward to a Messiah. Formalism. Do you know that you can be a Baptist and struggle with formalism? I've been in churches where the pastor got up and changed the order of service, started singing songs people didn't know, that, nothing wrong with songs, and people started to complain. I, I've been in churches, mainly this one, where we uh, changed out the seating and took out the pews. Well, well, pastor, I, I just love, I love the pews, you know, and, and I'm going to, I just, are you sure it's not a sin to take out the pews? You know, in the early church, they probably sat down under a tree somewhere, met in someone's backyard. You know, over in Africa, they, they're, they're lucky to get a concrete building up with a concrete floor and uh, sit on a wooden bench with no back. You know what I mean? We fall in love with things, and where are we really worshiping God? Or are we just going through the motions? Formalism. How about this one, legalism? Legalism. Now, by the pure definition, legalism is adding works to salvation, right? It's believing that you have to work your way to heaven. And we don't believe that here, okay? Now, can I tell you that legalism is set into the worship there in Israel? Because they believe that because they were a good Jew by going to the temple and doing these things, that automatically they were going to be rewarded and they, were, they had earned God's favor, Um. And um, that's legalism. And again, a lot of religions today, in fact, I would say 99% of the world's religions today are legalistic. They believe you have to work hard to earn God's favor and earn uh, the positive afterlife, however that particular religion wants to name it or call it. But legalism can seep into a Baptist church. How does legalism seep into a Baptist church? It's an after salvation. And here's the thing. Uh, you, you can get this attitude that if I don't work hard and I don't separate myself out and, and I don't have these high standards in my life, then I won't have God's favor. And I just want to remind everybody here this evening that we don't, we don't, we don't separate to earn God's favor. We, we separate from the world because we have God's favor. And I know that's just a subtle change in language. But listen, the Apostle Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth us. Meaning what? Because God loves me, I'm going to live different than the world. 
Instead, a lot of churches teach and a lot of Christians behave in a way that if you don't separate out in a certain way, then God is angry at you and He hates you. And I just want to remind us all, God's love is never on trial. God's love doesn't waver. We waver. But God's love doesn't waver. Here we see a corrupt worship, formalism and, and, and legalism. How about this one? Pharisaicalism. Pharisaicalism. Now, uh, you could say there's Pharisaicalism existent here, although I don't know that they called them Pharisees back uh, in uh, Isaiah's day. Eventually, this Judaism would develop the role of a Pharisee. But Pharisaicalism, as we know it, is just basically being a hypocrite. You know, churches are filled with hypocrites across America. And, and the truth is, there's a little bit of a hypocrite in all of us. I stand up here and try to be as transparent as I can and uh, share with you my struggles and, and where I, you know, I have my downfalls and things and uh, whatnot. But listen, even with, even with that said, on some level, I'm a hypocrite. And listen, on some level, uh, you're a hypocrite. But, but to be a full-blown Pharisee, there's no room for that in church. And God said here to the nation of Israel, your religion has grown apostate. I can't even stand to look down at the temple and see what takes place. I believe what, God, what Isaiah was saying here is the glory of the Lord has departed. The glory of the Lord has departed. Boy, I don't want those words to be spoken about me. I, I don't want those words to be spoken about our church. I don't want those words to be spoken about you. The glory of the Lord has departed. There Worship was corrupt. Their worship was corrupt. What was God calling for? He was calling for a changed heart. Look down at verse number 16. Wash you, wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Uh, relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Take your Bibles over to James chapter number 1. James chapter 1 and verse number 27. While you're turning there, I just want to remind everyone, and I've said this often, it bears repeating here, the word religion, the word religion is found four times in the Bible. And the verse we're going to look at is the only time in the Bible the word religion is used in a positive way. The other three times you find the word religion, it's mentioned in a negative light, negative connotation. Look at James chapter 1, verse 27. What is good religion? What is pure religion? Okay? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now listen, I, I want to circle back around and say, I'm for separation from the world. The Bible is for separation from the world. But what I see a lot of Christians do is they separate from the world, and then they act like they're better than everyone else. That doesn't please God. That doesn't please God. What is pure religion? It's to care about people who are struggling. It's to care about people who are hurting. Here we see it's to love on people that are fatherless. Not to cast them out, not to throw stones at them, not to put them down, to love on them. It's to help the vulnerable. And that's the idea here, the fatherless and the widow. Turn over to James chapter 3 and look at verse number 8.
I'm sorry, James 4.8. Uh, for those of you at home, um, you won't be getting these verses. I sent over the wrong reference. James 4.8. It says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. I've preached with a lot of energy tonight, a lot of enthusiasm, but let me just take it down a couple notches and in a somber, serious tone just talk to the church. I wonder if God ever looks down at us and He shakes His head at the way we worship Him. He sees how we live our lives all week long. He sees the filth we entertain ourselves with on TV. He hears the way we talk. He sees the friends we hang out with. He sees the way we abuse our bodies with substances or food. And then we stumble into church on Sunday and, you know, we go through the motions of church. James in this same book would tell us to not only be hearers but doers of the word. Otherwise, we deceive our own selves. And I wonder if God ever wants to just put his hands to his ears and scream at the top of his lungs, Stop, stop, stop. Your worship makes me sick. Your worship is an abomination to me. Boy, I sure hope he doesn't say that about White Oak Baptist Church. I sure hope he doesn't say that about the way I walk with him. There's plenty of room for struggle. Look back at James 3, verse 8 with me. Look there where it says, cleanse your hands. You know what that is? That's the outward. That's what people see. And that's important. The outward matters. Look, if, if you want to dress up for church, I'm all for it. I think that's great. But can I tell you a mistake a lot of Christians make is they get the outward looking really good while the inward is filthy. The truth is, I can look at you and all I can see is what you portray on the outside. But God looks right past that at our hearts. Look there, it says, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You know who a double-minded person is? It's someone who has clean hands but a dirty heart. You're living a double life. Heard about a man the other day, a police officer in another city who was caught. He was married to three women and engaged to two others and had seven other girlfriends. You know, that's, that's, I have a hard enough time keeping up with one woman. Amen? That's a lot of birthdays and anniversaries. That's a lot to keep up with. Um... Double-minded. A lot of Christians portray themselves one way with the brethren and another way with their friends at work, people in the neighborhood, people at school. My friend, God's called us to be righteous from the inward out. I would rather have someone come in here smelling like alcohol, not dressed up nice, but moving in the right direction and getting things right on the inside than to have someone come in here in a three-piece suit or 
some fancy dress and inwardly be corrupt. Boy, let's get it right. God looked down at Judah and their temple worship and he said, you make me sick. Your worship makes me sick. And he said, you need to clean this up. You need to clean this up. Philosophy says, think your way out. Indulgence says, drink your way out. Politics says, spend your way out. Science says, invest your way out. Industry says, work your way out. Communism says, strike your way out. Fascism says, bluff your way out. Militarism says, fight your way out. But the Bible says, pray your way out. And Jesus says, I am the way out. Amen? It's time we get back to Jesus and prayer and living a life that's honest and pure. So number one, we see Judah's offending sins. Quickly notice number two, Jehovah's offer to settle. Jehovah's offer to settle. Now, um, they've been called into court. The case has been presented against them. Their crimes are sins. It's obvious uh, there's hundreds of years of history of them uh, being guilty of these sins. And uh, God very well could move on from the sin to the sentencing. But instead, he says, I don't want this to land in court. Let's try to settle out of court. Look with me at uh, verse number 18. Verse number 18. It says there, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If, if, notice that word if, if ye be willing, that's the opposite of rebellious, willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. God says, look, I want to provide you a clean heart, a fresh start. I want to forgive you and pardon you. But, but, if we're going to do that, you're going to have to be willing and obedient. God says, when you've done it right, things have gone right. But when you've run from me, boy, things go awry real quick. Look at verse number 24, and let's read down through verse number 27. It says, Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin. And I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, thou shalt be called the the city of righteousness, the faithful city, Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. God here is saying to them, let's settle. Let's settle out of court. I will forgive you. I will let it all go as long as you are willing to change your behavior. I will take away all the destruction and I will give you that uh, which is beautiful. Hebrews nine, uh, Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-two uh, tells us that without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no remission. What does that mean? Is that Jesus was going to come and shed His blood on the cross? In fact, the fifty-third chapter of the book of Isaiah lays out in great detail how the Messiah would die by way of crucifixion, how His body would be beaten and bruised, and we know that His blood would be shed. And through that blood, our sins are washed away 
and forgiven. Someone said, well, how did someone in the Old Testament get saved? And the answer is simple. They got saved the same way we do in the New Testament. We look back to the cross. They look forward to the cross or the death of the Messiah. And so we see here Jehovah's offer to settle. Quickly here, notice letter A, repentance and redemption. Repentance and redemption. We already read these verses, but what he's saying here is, if you will repent, I will redeem you. Judah, Jerusalem, if you will come around, if you will um, be loyal to me, your father, if you will love me the way I have loved you, if you'll make that concerted effort, I will redeem you. Now notice, though, that if you're going to settle out of court, there's the, hey, this is what you get if you'll do it my way, but if you don't and I have to take you to court, here's what the end result will be, the threat, if you will. So we see repentance and redemption versus refusal and ruin. Refusal and ruin. Look with me at verse number 20. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. If ye refuse and rebel, you've got destruction and ruin coming your way. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. Read down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. By the way, they had idols set up under oak trees, and so this is a reference to their idolatry in verse 29. Verse 30, For ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth, and as a garden that hath no water, and the strong shall be as tow, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. Listen, if you're going to choose not to settle out of court, if you're going to choose to make me press charges, you will, you will be in ruin. You will be in ruin. Now, let me circle back around to the introduction. Let me talk about this as it pertains to America. We said that religious apostasy leads to moral awfulness. Look at verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13, we see the religious apostrophe. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. What's he saying? He's saying your religion has grown apostate. Now, what does that lead to? It leads to moral awfulness. awfulness. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. It's there, it says there, um, How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment. You see the moral lawfulness here? Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross. Thy wine mixed with water or diluted. Thy princes are rebellious. That's the leaders. And companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and uh, followeth after rewards. That means they take bribes. They judge not the fatherless. You see the neglect there. Neither doth the cause of the widow come upon them. You see the moral awfulness. Why? How do they get to a place where as a culture they were so morally depraved? They lost their religion. They, their religion became apostate which led to moral awfulness and what ended up happening. Well, we just read 28 through 31, 
And we would see, we would see with time what would happen. They would be carried away into Babylon and they would be put under political anarchy. Now, um, I'm an American boy through and through. I love this country. Um, we have our problems. We're far from perfect. But I think America's pretty great. But I've watched in my years of life as America has grown colder and colder and colder toward religion. I remember turning on the TV and watching shows like the Andy Griffith Show where everyone went to church on Sunday and businesses were shut down. That was a day when America was warm toward God and had a religion that was more pure. I was born in the 1980s, and I believe I was born into a time of religious, religious indifference, where people just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, yeah, go to church if you want. We're not for you or against you. You do you. But as America has grown, American churches have become more apostate in their teaching. They've lost credibility. And what's happened is, as we've lost our credibility, what we say here in America means less and less. Now we're beginning to see corruption invade every corner of our culture. I remember a day when sex outside of marriage was... <gasps> now, we now we're told we have to celebrate sex between any two people, anywhere, anytime. How do we get to this place? We got to this place because of religious apostasy. And it's led to a state in America of moral awfulness. And I just want to say that we are no exception to the rule. America is on its way to political anarchy. On its way. You say, well, what can we do? We can repent and be redeemed. You say, well, those politicians in Washington would get it together. I can't reach into their hearts and change a single thing about any of it. But I can't affect what this guy does. You can't affect what you do. If it would start with us, boy, no telling where that would go. You know, if I lit a fire and no one put it out, it would just be a matter of time till it grew and grew and grew. And I wonder if there would be a day where that fire would maybe reach Washington, D.C., and I'm not speaking about a physical fire. I'm speaking of a revival fire. That's where it's got to start. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Psalm 127.1 says this. It says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Proverbs 14.34 reminds us that righteousness exalteth the nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. We need folks like Isaiah who will get on their knees and pray for their country. Preach to their country. Care for their country. You know, Isaiah wasn't popular in his message, but he was right. Isaiah was shunned and eventually killed for his stand, but he was right. How about you, Christian? Will you pray for your country? Will you ask God to do something great? Why don't you take a minute right there where you're seated and just ask God to help you to be part of the solution.
Lord God, thank you for our church. Lord, I want to believe that in New England, we're one of just a handful of churches that are doing our best to preach the Bible the way it was written. Lord, but even here at this church, there's plenty of room for us to purify our worship. Lord, may the way we worship you not make you sick. Help us to be white hot with the gospel. Lord, help us to be passionate about not only believing what's right, but living it and loving you in the process. Lord, we pray for America, a country filled with corrupt politicians. and Lord, um, sin is the new norm. Righteousness is mocked and made fun of. We're even belittled and called hateful for what we believe. Lord, help us not to be deterred. Help us to have a tear in our eye and, Lord, truth in our heart. Lord, help us as we go through the book of Isaiah to be moved and stirred. Lord, thank you for the lessons we were able to take from the Bible tonight. Help them to stay in our heart for many, many days, weeks, and months, and years to come. In Jesus' name.